Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Journey Church. So good to have you. We know, we still know that there's so many people that are out that cannot join us for various reasons. A lot of people, sickness still going around. And so for those of you who are joining us online right now, we wish you were here. But so happy that you could tune in uh, right now or maybe even sometime later on this week. Um, we are in week 12 of our sermon series in a little known book in the New Testament called Second Peter. Second Peter was written, we believe, in 68 AD, just four years after Peter wrote First Peter. Um, and he actually indicates that he's, he's uh, being very, very uh, quick in writing a second letter. Um, there's a new danger on the scene for the churches that he first wrote to in 1 Peter, somewhere around uh, 64 AD in Asia Minor, the, the churches that are in what, were, was, what is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, in, in the initial letter, five chapters of 1 Peter, we have Satan as a roaring lion and a pending persecution that's coming upon the churches in Asia Minor and actually the churches around the empire. Uh, four years later, he has to write another letter, and it's actually the year of his death, 68 AD. He's got to get a message out. He's in earnest, very anxious. Why is that? Because he sees false teachers and false teachings invading the same churches and what Lucifer, what the devil, what the kingdom of darkness could not do as a roaring lion, he would do as a ravaging wolf in sheep's clothing. And what we have this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can start to open up there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. But what we have in 2 Peter chapter 3 today is what I see is really a map, a map of where we've been, a map of where we are, and a map of what comes next. If you know me, you know that I'm an outdoorsman, I'm an adventure uh, wanderer and adventure seeker. And because of that, I, I've loved maps. I've always loved maps. Even as a child, I love maps. I love to just open maps, love geography. I love to understand uh, the world. I love to, to understand land formations. I love to understand trails, uh, elevations, uh, uh, features. I, I've loved maps my whole life, so much so I actually I wear one for a clock. It's a Garmin. I can, I can actually turn this on and map how far I walk today, right here on the platform if I wanted to. It interfaces with my cell phone, but I'm a map guy. And just because I have modern technology, I have not given up my analog maps. I love maps, and especially maps of my island. You remember Stephen from uh, uh, Braveheart? It's my island. Arizona is my island. I'm uh, youngest of six, only native-born Rodin um, of my siblings in Arizona. I thought I was going to be a missionary to Muslims overseas. God brought me back to my island, Arizona, as a missionary. And so I love this state. I love uh, the people of the state. I love the, the um, geology of the state. I love uh, the geography of the state. And I've been all over the state. I've been to such weird places in this state on my adventures. And uh, chances are, if you've been somewhere, maybe you even have a a vacation home or a cabin, I probably have a map of your cabin. Yeah, I, I either have it on a one to a quarter million or one to a hundred thousand, maybe even a quadrangle, which is one to 24 
thousand uh, kind of uh, perspective. I have, in fact, a Baghdad, Holbrook, St. John's. I have a, I have a quadrangle of Nutrioso. I think we have someone who has a cabin in Nutrioso. Yeah, I've got maps. I got big, small, all kinds of maps. I even have a a, a map of maps. This is I, it's a favorite. I mean, all of Arizona. All of Arizona and all the different one by 24,000 map quadrangles by the USGS on this map. So I know if I want to get a smaller map, I know which one to order. So cool. You know, there's a map on here called Roden Crater. Yeah, Roden Crater. It's, it's my island. Just saying, I could show it to you. It's up near Flagstaff. But I love maps. Now, maps, in order to be useful, there's four things that, that need to be true of maps. The first off is... They must be accurate. They must be accurate. Secondly, they must be understandable. I've got to know how to read maps, and it's got to be in a language that I can actually engage, hopefully not metric. I am so American. Just give me this SAE, standard American, and and it's got to be understandable. It must be properly oriented. If I'm going to know what I'm going to do on a map, I've I've got to point it toward north and figure that part out. And then finally, oh, so helpful, and and, and I, I need to explain this. I do love to just open up maps and look at stuff and imagine. But even better is a map that I'm actually in. And to understand on that map, if I'm really using the map in real time, I've got to know where I'm at. Maybe even when you go into like a a shopping mall, you're looking for a specific store and you're like, where is it here? And that's the first thing you're looking for. Is this store in this mall? Uh, or maybe even you're going to Sabino Canyon on a hike, and you're looking at the trails, and, and if they're open, you're, you're looking for where you want to go, but then the second thing you, you ask and you look for is a little arrow that says, you are here. Yeah, we need to understand where on the map we are. When we have these things going for us with maps, three things happen. Maps help us remember and process where we've been. Yesterday, was it a hard day? Was it a good day? Was it a challenging day? Was it a productive day? Did we conquer something big? You look back on where you've been on the map so you can properly process where you've been. Secondly, you want to find out and be oriented to where you are. What is my context? What is surrounding me? What am I up against right here and right now? And then thirdly, maps help us mentally and emotionally prepare for what comes Next, and I just described the Bible. The map of maps, the book of books. That's what the word Bible means. Book of books. It's like a huge collection of, of understanding and orienting myself, my life, and where I fit in this cosmic time clock called God's redemptive plan of the ages. And that's exactly what we have in our text here this morning. I hope you've been reading 2 Peter. If you haven't been along listening to every, every message, you can go back and read chapters 1 through 2. and Because uh, we're in our final run in the final chapter, chapter 3. A couple more weeks left. But let me read to you. Let me read to you 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. To help us understand where we've been, where we are. And what comes next? Peter says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as a word from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, after dealing with false teachers and their victims in chapter 2, last four or five messages unpacking chapter 2, Peter returns to addressing his readers directly. He calls them beloved. Agapeto. Agape, you hear the word? Dearly loved ones. I'm talking to you about all the dangers that are coming. I want to talk right back here to your hearts. And he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you. Beloved. And both of them, I'm, I'm trying to stir up. The word there for stir up is wake you up. I want to arouse you uh, uh, and so that you're aware and you see where you are at on God's map. Wake up. And I want to stir up or wake you up your sincere mind by way of reminder, the word sincere, what a great word picture. Um, it's made up, it's a compound word in the Greek. It literally means uh, two parts of it, uh, the sun or sunlight and to judge. And he's saying, I, I know you guys. I, I know your minds are sincere, that they are held up to the sunlight and judged by the sunlight. This is interesting because in the Latin, the word sincere means without wax. And so what we have is this beautiful picture of both the Latin and the Greek of what's going on here, a word picture. Without wax, the reason why the, the, the Greeks or, or um, in Latin, uh, the word sincere is without wax is that in, in the ancient world, the clay vessels that were sold in the marketplace, sometimes a potter would be also a trickster. And he or she would take their damaged pottery and they would fill in the cracks with wax and then paint over them. But when the consumer came and wanted to buy a solid piece of work, they would hold it up to the sunlight to see if they could see any light coming through the wax. Without wax, sun judged. Hold it up to the light. And you'll see if it is sincere or not. And what Peter's saying, I know your hearts, I know your minds, your sincere believers and sincere followers of Jesus. You want the truth no matter what the price. You're willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. You're not in this because it's just the people you love and it's a bunch of fairy tales and myths. You and I, we're the kinds of people that are willing to walk away from the religion of our childhood if that's what it means to find Christ. If that's what it means to find truth, we'll follow the evidence anywhere it leads. Because our minds are sincere, without wax. We want the truth at all costs. And that's what Peter is telling his readers. I want to stir that up in you. 
I know who you really are. I want to make sure you are awake and, and you are oriented to where we've been, where we are, and what comes next. Because, because there are many who are on their way who are not sincere. They might even be in the church. They will definitely be in the world around the church. So, we want to be those sun-judged minds, those sincere hearts. And we want to follow the truth no matter where it goes. And I've got good news for you. Good news for me. Good news for us. That the map that we have been given is impeccable. Spot on. The map is impeccable. This is what he says in verse 2. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Hundreds of them. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. And hundreds of them already fulfilled. We're just waiting for the final ones now. But it's not just the predictions of the holy prophets. But he goes on to say, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we should remember these predict predictions, and they're not just a, a one, once, one and done kind of prediction, but there's alignment throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament Jewish prophets, Jesus of Nazareth himself, in his teachings, his words as recorded, either by an apostle or someone that was actually uh, condoned by or, or uh, basically, I'm looking for, for the word, help me with the word, uh, validated by an apostle. So for instance, John Mark, he's not an apostle, but Peter validates John Mark's gospel and so on. And so what we have is, is scriptures that combine a line and that there's no contradictions between them. You cannot see light between these prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior or the predictions of the apostles. This is what we learned several weeks back in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21 because we got some of the same language here that is really important as we understand we have a, an impeccable map to go by. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in, in what more fully confirmed than what Peter in that text had just talked about his own personal eyewitness account of the transfiguration of Jesus. And he says we've got something even better than my personal experience. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. He goes on to say, you do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not made up and it's not to be just played with like, what do you think it means? I don't know. I think it's kind of cool what you think it means. That's not how we deal with the scripture. It has authority to it. It means what it means. It says what it says. God does not stutter. He's trying to communicate something very clear and not something mystically weird that everyone gets to just take a crack at. 
But secondly, what that word means, uh, someone's own interpretation, talks about source. This didn't come from individuals who go, you know, I think I'll write some, some deep, profound, spiritual stuff today. Maybe it will be scripture. That's not how this happened, but he goes on to explain. For no, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men and women, the map is impeccable. Can I give you a short course of, because uh, I've, I've written papers on this, I've written sermon series on this. We've done discussion groups, but, but why do I trust the Word of God? And I know Pastor Tyler a couple weeks ago did his version. There's a lot of overlap. It's not a one-up deal going on, but, but this is the, it's the same stuff. Some of you weren't here. Let me give you my list. First off, did you know that the Word of God, the, the Bible, what we call the Bible, is the number one bestseller of all times right now? It doesn't mean it's true, but it's been the number one bestseller every single year for centuries. It is the, the most translated of all literature the world over. It's the most read daily of any literature in the world. Doesn't mean that it's true or reliable yet. Just means it's one fascinating collection of literature. Number two, this is the only book, and actually even of the holy books, the so-called holy books. You could throw in the Baha'u'llah, the Bhagavad Gita, um, any number of the Book of Mormon. None of those so-called holy books makes the same statements about itself that this collection of literature makes. All scripture is God-breathed. All. The very breath of God. Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword doesn't mean it's true. I can say anything I want about myself, right? But this is being set up that if, if the first and the second, the first gets our attention, the second uh, causes us to ask some questions, if this is really God's book and it's alive, it should have some marks. Number three, history. History. There is outside history that corroborates and testifies and synergizes with the history that is told in here. Zero contradictions. Fourthly, archaeology. Two sides of a coin. One, not only has there never been an archaeological dig that has disproved anything in here, but daily, daily, new things are dug up and discovered that validate what is found in here. Ready for number five? Number five, fulfilled prophecy. We've already talked about mind-blowing prophecies. You want to hear a few? Get me afterwards or talk to me later. I'll show you things that will blow your mind. That cannot be anything other than a super mind that is outside of, outside of time and space that is making these kinds of predictions down to the very day and being fulfilled already. Number six, number six, because that's number five, fulfilled prophecy. Uh, number six, what I want to say is number six. Maybe I'll just jump to number six. I had, I had a number six um, and a number seven, but let me just jump to seven. Um, continuity, continuity. Watch this. And, and Tyler said the same thing. I'm like, ah, oh, did we go to the same school? Actually, yeah, we did one of our schools. We did go to the same school, but let, check this out. 66 books. 
at least 40 different authors, three different languages, written from four different continents over a time span of at least 1,500 years. The human authors themselves could not have been as different as they were. From kings that ruled the world all the way down to eccentric, naked, destitute prophets. And yet, perfect continuity. Zero error, zero contradictions. Perfect unified map of God's cosmic clock. His redemptive plan of the ages. Our map is impeccable. And in this text, we see the holy prophets, commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the writings of the apostles. And specifically, what are they attesting to? The day of the Lord, which will culminate in the coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus will return in the words of the angels in Acts 1.11. Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus who's been taken up from your midst will return, quote, in like manner. It's not awesome? And that's not the only place that the scripture records what is coming next. The day of the Lord is coming and it will culminate or at least be a major component of that. And the major purpose is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the map is impeccable. Are you ready? Here's the second thing, is not only is the map impeccable, but this moment, I believe, is obvious. This moment in time where we are on the map, you are here. It's being, becoming more and more clear where in God's cosmic clock, his redemptive plan of the ages, we find ourselves here in the year, what is it, 2022 now? Yeah. Um, I want to answer five journalistic questions in this section from the text. Because scoffers are coming. And it's difficult to understand exactly who are they? Where are they from? So let's, let's answer the five journalistic questions. Who, what, where, when, and why? Who, what, where, when, and why? Tick them off. Who? Scoffers. The word here is, it means to play with, to trifle, or to mock. I love that, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. It's just not who and what we are known about. This mockery, this pejorative, uh, kind of uh, snarky, making fun of attitude. But that's who they are. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come. Well, what are they scoffing? They mock the day of the Lord and the second coming of Jesus. In verse 4, they say, where's the promise of his coming? And they go on, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's interesting, the fact that they, they use the word fathers means that they have some religious background. And they're talking about the Old Testament patriarchs. And, and if they know that much, they should know other parts of, the, of, of God's story. And yet they are gaslighting. 
You know what that means? They're intentionally leaving out facts. They're changing the backstory. They're ignoring what has happened. And they say all things continue as it's always been. So they have a, a, a theology or a philosophy or, or um, an idea of, of um, history is just, just really stable. It's, it's really, it's, it's linear, but it's, there's nothing wild, there's nothing cataclysmic, and ne- definitely nothing supernatural ever happens. And so you think he's going to return? Well, hello, look at the backstory. Nothing big ever happens around here. Nothing supernatural happens. God doesn't step into time and space and do anything miraculous, so why would he now? They're gaslighting. Where are they from? This is a harder one. They could be from inside the church. This could be a a next chapter of the false teachers found in chapter 2 which came out from amongst the people, and then maybe they turn around and they start mocking them as they are now liberated from the church and liberated from, from old school religion and Christianity, and now they know how to, they know how to really get it on and, and, and throw down and party, and they're like, you fuddy-duddy weirdos, don't you know he's not returning? Ha-ha. Or it could be an epic in a time in a season like our own that the nations of the world are adopting a kind of worldview that says supernatural things just don't occur. We do know when they come that it's future tense, so that when Peter is writing this to these churches in 68 AD, they're not there yet. So this is a prophetic statement. The scoffers will come in the last days, future tense, will come. Now I want to just make mention, technically speaking, you all know that we have been living in the last days since the ascension of Christ. That is a theologically accurate statement. However, there is also, according to Jude, Jude, verse 18, it's a parallel book right after uh, 2 Peter. Um, He says that in the last time. So Peter says in the last days. Jude says in the last time. So potentially there's the last day or days of the last times. Follow? Okay, so there's the end, the final epic in God's redemptive plan of the ages, the age of the church, the age of the Gentiles, what we're living in since the ascension, but there's also the last day or the last last time of the last day. Jude says it this way, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Almost sounds like they're writing off of each other. We talked about that. But anyway, they are not in the world yet at the time that Peter is writing this. They're on their way. Now, interesting how we talk about the holy prophets and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, and it corroborates. So not only did Peter say it, not only did Jude say it, but listen to what Paul said. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, he's writing to a young pastor. This is one of what's called the the pastoral epistles. I I read these like, like three times per year to know how to do my job. So very familiar with this. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days... 
future tense, prediction, prophetic teaching. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So we've got the who, what, where, and when, but why? What drives this scoffing, this mockery that nothing supernatural happens, everything's natural, stop with your mumbo-jumbo pie in the sky, Jesus ain't coming back. What drives this kind of attitude? What we discover here in verse 3 is that they come scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So much so that in verse 5 through 6, it says they deliberately overlook this fact. They know the fact. They're gaslighting. They're, they, they've got something to prove. Something is at stake so much so that they are deliberately turning away from this and mocking it and trying to even change the backstory. And, and what are they ignoring? Two of the most obvious pieces of not only religious history, but I would say scientific history or geological history. Two things that are more scientifically provable than any other thing. One, creation ex nihilo. You know what that means? Out of nothing. Okay, no matter how, lo- how old you think the universe is, it had a beginning. It didn't, it has not been here forever. That theory just doesn't work. And I love this. Philosophers have been throwing around this idea for, for se- ages and centuries. Really, it's at the heart of all philosophy is why is there something rather than nothing? It started somewhere. And we could spend days unpacking from mathematics to physics to philosophy demonstrating the universe had a beginning. It is clear. And they want to deny that and gaslight that. You know, all things are normal and have just been going on. From the very beginning. And then secondly, secondly, a worldwide cataclysmic deluge or flood. That's what he says here, that that, um, they deny that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Remember that, verse 5, the word of God, because that's going to come into play one more time. Verse 6, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That, that first section, uh, creation ex nihilo, he's referring to Genesis 1 account. And how many times does water show up in Genesis chapter 1? You go back and do the homework, uh, give me a report, and I'll give you a grade on it. Um, but water's all over Genesis chapter 1. And they're, they're will, willfully ignoring that God stepped into time and, and actually created time. But then the second thing is that in the same manner that God created the earth and the heavens through water, with water, out of the water, all these these, uh, things that by Genesis 6, he would destroy it with water. 
And what is so mind-blowing is how clear, how clear the evidence is, how simple and available it is in geology, paleontology, the study of fossils, to see that there was a worldwide cataclysmic flood. And yet it's just out of style. And even many Christians saying, hey, it was probably localized. I don't think so. These two things, cataclysmic events that have more evidence than any other thing in, in geology and in the scientific community, and they're gaslighting it. And that Peter's saying that's going to happen. And it probably happened to some degree in the first century, not too far after he wrote these words, but boy, oh boy, has it happened in the last 120 years around here and around the world. You know what I'm talking about? Can I just read you a quote from uh, L. Marison Davies? He's a renowned British paleontologist. He's, he's now deceased. But he said these words about the days in which we're living. This is only about 50, 60 years that he, he said this. Here then we come face to face with a circumstance which cannot be ignored in dealing with the subject, namely the existing, uh, existence of a marked prejudice against the acceptance of belief in a cataclysm like the deluge. Now we should remember that up to 100 years ago, such a prejudice did not exist. As a general one, at least, belief in the deluge of Noah was axiomatic, not only in the church itself, Catholic and Protestant, but in the scientific world as well. And yet the Bible stood committed to that prophecy that in what it calls, quote, the last days, a very different philosophy would be found in the ascendant, a philosophy which lead men to regard belief in the flood with disfavor and treat it as disproved, declaring the, quote, all things continue from the beginning of the creation. In other words, a doctrine of uniformity in all things, a doctrine which the apostle obviously regarded as untrue to fact, was to replace belief in such cataclysms as the deluge. It's happened in the last 120 years. That around the world, doesn't matter what continent you're on, that scientists go, oh, poo, poo, poo. We can explain everything of quite a different way. Can I just throw a couple, couple just like a little sliver of, of evidence for, for cataclysmic worldwide deluge flood evidence that you basically have to gaslight to get around the reality of what's available to all of us to see and understand in the geological record. First of all, I'll just mention the, the Karoo Formation of Africa. 800 billion vertebrate animals fossilized instantly. Mass fossilization is not happening anywhere in the world today. Maybe small examples here and there, but not like this. In California, the herring fossil bed, one billion fish in a four square mile plot. You know, you want to know what's happening? So, so if if it's not cataclysmic and things just die and drift to the bottom, crawdads come and, and eat it. Scavengers eat it, or it rots. Plant material, animal material, something massive has to happen to make fossils. And to get 800 billion fossils, vertebrate animals, all at once, 
or one billion fish in four square mile. How about uh, polystratic petrified trees? You know what that means? Most, most petrified trees are sideways and sitting in one layer of the geological column. Polystratic trees are upright, and here's what's so crazy about them. They're trees that are obviously one, one tree, and yet they can go through, through virtually multiple uh, layers of the geological column that are supposed to be separated by millions of years. And yet there they are. Paleozoic, Croatic, you know, all these different layers. And you're going, well, how would that happen? Because the geological column is a falsehood in what we're told that it is because these fossils exist going through all these. All over the world you can find this kind of evidence. You can find the Superstition Mountains as a child. I'm up at about 7,000 foot elevation and we're looking and there's shellfish animals um, all over the place fossilized. Just walk all over them, pick them up, take them home. Doesn't matter. There's, there's virtually billions of them. And that's all over the planet. You know that three-fourths of the Earth's crust is covered in sedimentary rock that was originally deposited under massive moving water. Three-quarters of the Earth's crust around the planet. I'm just saying, that's a small example. And you've got to gaslight to say, Nothing cataclysmic ever happens. God never steps in to do anything. Oh yeah, look at the creation of the universe, creation ex nihilo. Look at the evidence for the flood, not only in the Bible, but look at it all over the place. It's mind-blowing. So why would they do this? Why would they deliberately ignore these things as fact? And its answer is in this phrase following their own sinful desires. Tyler made a statement, um, bottom line, maybe two Sundays in a row, said that um, your eschatology will determine your ethics. Um, I heard Josh McDowell once say, apologist, guy who tried to disprove Christianity and end up becoming a passionate follower of Christ. He said, the fastest way to a man's theology is through his Morality. Same idea. Because here's the deal. When your theology and your morality do not match. Theology. God is. God is good. God is big. God is powerful. God is holy. God is loving, but God is also just. And I'm naughty. <laughs> and I'm horny. And I'm in sin. <sighs> and we feel this tug of war going on. Ask a teenage boy. Ah, I want to love God. Ah, I want a girlfriend. Ah, and this just torment. And we've got to wrestle through this. But in over time, it drives you insane and drives you mad. And so here's what people do in time. In time, they will either change their morality to match their theology, or over time, they will change their theology to match their morality. And that's what's happening in this text. Is these people, whether coming out of the church or they're outside just going, cast off restraint, let's have a sexual revolution, let's go for it. And by the way, God is dead. So you don't have to feel bad anymore. 
And you go, well, that's not us. We're Christians. We're in the church. Yeah, but there's subtle, more subtle forms of this that take place in our minds and imagination. And we start to think, sacrifice is hard. Life is painful. Where is God? When will God give me what I've been wanting? When will God show up and fix my stuff? And do I really want to bank my whole life on heaven and eternity when I'm in a cruddy marriage? Or can I get a little bit here and there? And maybe I can go eat, pray, love. That's what's at stake. Instead of holding the line and trusting in a good God, and don't play with the, the past and gaslight the facts. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul said this, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That there is an immoral basis for unbelief. Because you can't live forever in a tension between your theology and your morality. So change one or the other. Change one or the other. Well, that's the who, what, where, when, and why. And we know where we've been. God's word is clear, and I believe that the universe, the whole creation, is telling us that it comes from some place and that it matches the history that's outlined in the scripture. And, and we can see the times around us. We not only see where we've been, we see where we are. And if those two things are true and our map is reliable, we also know what comes next. What comes next? Verse 7. In verse 5, you heard that God created by the word and that he destroyed the ancient world by his word. Verse 7 says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And the point is that God spoke and it was. That's Psalm 33, verse 9. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God does things with just the words of his mouth. The holy prophets, the Lord and Savior, and the writings of the apostles all agree what comes next. Can I share some of those writings from the holy prophets and the Lord and Savior and the apostles? Check this out. Isaiah 66, verse 15 through 17. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like whirlwinds to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire will, will, will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. We just go, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Exactly! He doesn't want you to be caught in this judgment. It's coming for those who continue to re reject him and gaslight the clear facts around them. That's who's getting judged here. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. That's Isaiah 66. Let's look at another one. And by the way, there's dozens. I just cherry-picked a few. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 through 32. 
And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And you go, again, what about for God so loved the world that he gave us? Exactly. God so loves the world that listen to what it says in Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This judgment does not have to be for you. If you are not a child of God because you've received Jesus as your personal Savior, today's your day. Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Can I give you one more from the Old Testament prophets? Malachi 4, verse 1 through 2, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That the day is coming, is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You say, for God so loved the world, where's the love of Christ in this text? Look at the next verse. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So on one side, the world is being judged, and on the other side, those who have turned to the Lord to say, I need a Savior, I call on you, they're leaping. They're leaping, and they're being delivered. How about the teachings of the Lord and Savior? Matthew 24, 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then will appear in the heavens the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus of Nazareth. He wrote that said that. And then one more, and this is the Apostle Paul. Because remember, we said holy prophets, Lord and Savior, apostles. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why is this all so important of understanding what has already happened, where we are, and what comes next? Here's the bottom line that I think is for us. What, what, the Lord, what Peter's trying to te teach his first century listeners and what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us today is this. Bottom line, remembering where we've been and what comes next will help deliver us from living in error where we are. Because a little of this can seep in and we become secularized and we start to think about how can I get my cake and eat it too? How can I do both? How can I enjoy my sin and have a hope of an eternity in heaven with God? That creeps into any Christian, in any generation, in any church. Rather than, that's a lie. Sin doesn't satisfy, it's a passing pleasure. And in the end, it brings death. I don't want to enjoy that, I want to hate it. I want to love God with all I've got. And the anecdote for that is to know 
What has already happened? Where did we come from? What's happened that's clear? Where are we now and what comes next? Remembering where we've been, what comes next, will help deliver us from living in error where we are. Can I give you two more scriptures? One is from the Apostle John toward the end of his life. 1 John 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Watch this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That the day of the Lord and the second coming of Jesus is a great motivation to live godly lives. And then if I can just cherry pick from next Sunday, 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Amen? Father, thank you for such a clear map. Thank you for the testimony of your word, 66 books, 40 different authors, uh, 1,600 years, perfect continuity. Thank you that it has been tested and tried in many individual lives, and Lord, as, as much as we've tasted, you've confirmed to us your word is truth, reliable, Lord, we want to flee unto you. We want to have lives that are characterized, that are, that are free of error in immorality. That we would be impervious to the scoffers who mock. And that we would live lives of holiness, godliness, purity, and fulfilling the mission you have for us and for the church until you return. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.